0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday, 10 to 2, on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app.
1: This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. You're listening to the Mornings with Simi podcast. And on today's episode... BC's privacy commissioner is looking at different contact tracing apps to track the spread of COVID-19. It's not intended
2: to be a tool of surveillance. It's not intended to identify the individuals or identify
1: you or your geolocation. This cannot be used for tracking and surveillance. So what kind of information do these apps gather? And how safe is your information? A bizarre story out of Venezuela, where authorities claim they have captured two U.S. mercenaries who were part of a team attempting to capture President Nicolas Maduro.
3: It feels like it's come out of a Frederick Forsyth novel. You know, the dogs of war. Mercenaries trying to overthrow uh, governments in small developing countries.
1: And how will BC's phased reopening plan impact local businesses? First couple of weeks of the pandemic, we're focused on some of the
4: government uh, financial measures and how they were helping businesses and where some of those gaps are. But in recent weeks, we pivoted more towards the reopening of the economy and that recovery phase and
1: what that means. That and much more coming up on the Mornings with Simi podcast. So the Prime Minister did not speak yesterday, but he will be today, 8 o'clock this morning, uh, just for anybody out there who is wondering, and of course, we will have that live for you right here. Uh, What is he expected to talk about today? Well, sounds like there is a wage boost for essential workers that is going to be very high on the list. This is something that has apparently uh, been negotiated between the federal government and the different provinces. So we expect to hear more on that. Uh, So that's coming up. Other press conferences, that are going to be today over the noon hour. And you'll hear this on The Jill Bennett Show. The City of Vancouver and Mayor Kennedy Stewart having a press conference today. And remember, on that list of the reopening plan that was announced by Premier John Horgan yesterday... Things like community centres, recreation centres, and of course that has a lot of people wondering, well, what about my community centre? Where can I go? What about libraries? Those were also on the list. So we do expect an update from the City of Vancouver today about what perhaps their reopening plan looks like, what next steps that the city is going to be taking. So we'll have more on that for you. And then this afternoon... Once again, hearing from the provincial government, they have got more to announce, not just on the COVID-19 numbers for the day, but talking about uh, surgeries, elective surgeries that they're trying to get back on track now. That is huge for so many people out there. We had one uh, cancelled at my house that we were, you know, somebody was waiting two years for at my house. So uh, that was pretty painful, still is, and still waiting to get rescheduled. So those are all important announcements coming up today that we'll have for you. But right now, let's find out. Out what is going to be the more specifically happening in Ottawa today? Joining us now is Abigail Beeman, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning. So, what do we expect from the Prime Minister today?
4: Well, a couple of things. We expect the prime minister to provide an update on the work that the Canadian Armed Forces have been doing. Uh, this is primarily in Quebec and Ontario in terms of help in long-term care institutions. There's also going to be a news conference uh, led by the minister of defence that happens before the prime minister speaks, and that's his area of focus as well. So, an update there uh, and tied to that in some way, we're expecting the Prime Minister to announce details about a wage boost for essential frontline workers and this all comes down to or was initiated by uh, the call for more help for those on the front lines in long-term care facilities. Uh, It's been a number of weeks since Prime Minister Trudeau uh, talked about boosting the wages. This is obviously something that needs help from the provinces, but he had said a number of weeks ago that he was open to helping from the federal level as well. And there are a few issues for these frontline workers, uh, one being to encourage people to come to work in, in, in a situation that, you know, puts their personal safety at an increased risk, but also this other important issue of workers in some provinces being banned from uh, working mm-hmm. in more than one care facility. Uh, and for people who don't make a large salary and are having to cobble together a living from cobbling together hours in different facilities. That was having a big impact on the bottom line. So uh, a lot of people anxious to hear what the Prime Minister will announce. And also worth noting that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau has another call with all the premiers, one of his regular calls that will happen before he is uh, addressed to Canadians as well. And you can be sure that they'll be going over the
1: final details of this plan. All right, so we'll have that live this morning for people. Also, there was that in-person session for MPs in the House of Commons this week. What was the big topic of that? Like, what was the opposition trying to get answers on
4: i you know it's a really long list everything is, is the quickest answer there it was more than it was a session that lasted more than 5 hours and was really an opportunity for the opposition parties to grill the liberals on all of the aid that has been rolled out but more specifically on the issues with it so who's Still not receiving out help. Who's having trouble getting help? What programs have problems or kinks that have yet to be worked out? And so it depended on which opposition party. But a whole range of issues from farmers not getting enough help, issues uh, with landlords not using uh, the the rent relief programs properly, um, or, or sorry, not not enough buy in on that front. Uh, seniors. It's been so many weeks since we have heard increased calls for more help for more seniors that hasn't uh, come. The NDP focused right. on getting ten. Pay- Paid sick days for workers, uh, as well as uh, as more help for uh, child care. Also from the Conservatives, not COVID-related, uh, they introduced a petition which the MP who introduced it, Glenn Mott, said was the biggest e-petition in Canadian history, 175,000 people signing uh, that they are not happy with the Liberals' assault rifle, uh, assault weapon ban. So uh, a number busy. of topics that came up. Yes, the busy day.
1: No kidding. All right, Abigail, thank you. Thanks.
5: If you do come back from somewhere else in the world and you're going to be residing in British Columbia, you will have to observe a 14-day isolation period. We're going to be monitoring that with the federal government for the foreseeable future.
1: That is Premier John Horgan, of course, at yesterday's press conference, along with Provincial Health Minister Adrian Dix and Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. They were outlining a plan to reopen B.C., but he was talking about something interesting there, monitoring people to make sure they're enforcing that self-quarantine that involves contact tracing apps, something you've probably heard a lot about. Now, BC Privacy Commissioner Michael McAvoy has told the media that his office is taking a look at different contact tracing apps, but no word yet on when that might happen or what the you know verdict is eventually going to be. So, what kind of information do these apps gather and how safe? is your privacy, if you choose to use them. Well, we thought we'd talk more about that now. So joining us is Anne and the Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre. Anne, thanks for being back with us. Oh, my pleasure, Simi. Have these become quite common? And are, are all of these apps typically the same?
2: They're not the same, and but they're becoming very popular in terms of all the provinces are looking at, at developing an app, using an app, uh, globally... Uh, Australia has done this and uh, the the UK, uh, some better than others. And here's the issue. The the whole point of the app is so that if you come into close proximity with someone who has COVID-19 positive, then you'll be alerted to the fact that you've been exposed to someone and go get it checked out. Um, The problem is this. It's not intended to be a tool of surveillance. It's not intended to identify the individuals or identify you or your geolocation. This cannot be used for tracking and surveillance. That's the point I'm trying to get across. And Apple and Google, believe it or not, got together and together produced an amazing, very privacy-preserving app. Um, in fact, they, they don't call it a contact tracing tool. They call it an exposure notification so that you will, be, you will know when you've been exposed to it. And it is totally privacy-preserving, and that's the model we need to follow.
1: Right, but Anna, how would it know that you had come into contact with somebody? If you came into contact with that person a week ago, how would it know?
2: Oh, because uh, your phone has, they're using something called a blue, a Bluetooth uh, beacons, which emit um, this number every 15 minutes, it changes. And it will be alerted to the fact that it gets exposed to someone else who is self-reported as COVID-19 okay. positive. This happens all the time. It's not a big deal with technology. But Apple, Google have gone the additional step of actually encrypting all this information using AES, a very strong tool. They have, and, and I've talked to Apple several times, they've briefed me on it. I've looked under the hood. None of the information is identifiable, not your location, who you are, who they are. It just alerts you if you've been exposed uh, to someone, and, and that's the whole point of it. It's not tracing people. This can't be a tool of surveillance.
1: Right. So how, why wouldn't then everybody use that particular app?
2: Well, they're, they're getting there. For example, Australia used a different app that was privacy-invasive. They just changed. A few days ago, they switched to the Apple-Google framework. Some provinces already, like New Brunswick, here in Canada, of course, uh, they are using the Google, uh, the uh, Apple Google framework. So all of this, and what this does Simi, me is, it builds trust. It builds mm-hmm. trust in that it is totally privacy preserving, and there is such trust deficit right now. We need to have you know trust by design. We need to ensure. It's built into these, um, I hate calling them contact tracing, but into these apps Mm -hmm. so that people can be comforted and then they'll be more likely to use it.
1: Right. You called it a framework then. So can every jurisdiction adapt it in some way if they just use that Apple-Google framework?
2: Yes. In fact, Apple, uh, Google have said that they will assist any public health authorities who want to use it. And, uh, you know, it's free, freely available. So they can readily gain access to it, and build that trust with the individuals in their um, jurisdiction.
1: So then why wouldn't everybody just use this one?
2: That's a really good question, Simi. (laughs) (laughs) Let's
1: put that out there. That's a very good question. I mean, you're a security expert, so if there was a privacy problem, you would say it, and you're saying this one is the best one.
2: I would lead with a problem if there was a problem. Honestly, they have briefed me on two occasions, very, very detailed. Plus, you can look at what they've done. You can look at their tech. It's open source. They want all of this to be open source. So why not?
1: Interesting. Okay. Is it just a matter of time, do you think? And then like as, as the word gets out there that, listen, this is the one to know. I know BC says that they've looked at a couple of different ones and they haven't found one that they like yet.
2: I'd be happy to talk to them. <laughs> but of course, it's their decision. And they have, you have a wonderful uh, privacy commissioner, Michael McAvoy. So I'm sure he's going to be taking care of all of this.
1: Right. So is this the way to go then? Do you think in the future we're going to just have to get used to having one of these on our phones?
2: Well, I think it will give you some comfort because there's, it's totally privacy-preserving, so no information is going to be leaked out, no geolocation, no identifiers, nothing. And it will give you that additional measure of, have I been exposed to someone? You know, if you care, I mean, the reality is, look, the pandemic is going to end. Uh, let's be clear about that. What I want to make sure is that privacy and our freedom don't end uh, after the pandemic, because what happens whenever there's a crisis like this, a lot more personal information is usually uh, gathered under emergency um, provisions of privacy laws. And then that continues. That's what happened after nine mm-hmm. Let's not make the same mistake now.
1: That is so true. So I guess this is dependent, though, Anne, isn't it, on one, people having a smartphone, two, people downloading the right app for this and enough people using it?
2: No, it's true. Now, I think once public health authorities, um, you know, develop whatever they're going to develop in terms of whatever technology, I'm sure they're going to be publicizing this very widely. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it'll be hard to know about it. And how do I do it? I don't think that'll be a problem.
1: All right. So you think more and more, we're going to be hearing more about this?
2: Certainly for a while until the pandemic comes to an end, which, you know, it doesn't seem to be like this month or next month. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, You'll be hearing more about this.
1: Okay. Well, thanks so much. And and by the way, before you go, one last question. What questions should we ask? Like if we're saying, okay, I'm going to download this contact tracing app. What do I need to ask to make sure this is one of the good ones?
2: As the public health authority, um, are you going to be collecting any of my personal information? I don't want any of my personally identifiable data uh, accessed by you or the government or, or anyone. And, and I think that's, that's the critical point, because you don't have to have any of your information revealed. This is for you to gain benefit to learn if you've been exposed uh, to someone who's COVID-19 positive. So this is not a, a government surveillance tracking tool. Cannot be
1: that. All right. Anne, thanks so much.
2: My pleasure, Simi. Thank you.
1: Anne Kavukian, who's the Executive Director of the Global Privacy and Security by Design Centre, talking about contact tracing apps. And she says there are good ones out there. She cited that Google Apple one uh, several times, says that that's a good one and hoping that more jurisdictions will adopt that one. BC still looking for the right contact tracing app, and I'm sure we'll be getting updates on that.
5: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, this weekend, of course, is Mother's Day. How do we do that during a pandemic? Yes, things are starting to open up, but they're not going to be open up enough for us to celebrate mom the way we are used to celebrating mom. Let's talk more about this now with the help of Nikki Reitmeier. Nikki, what are you going to do for your mom?
0: I am certainly going to send her a card. I think I may uh, get a little bold here, and I might make her dinner for Mother's Day. My wow. social circle has been pretty small I think, uh, you know, making mom dinner, I, I think that's a safe thing to do. I feel, I feel confident about it, especially after the press conference yesterday. So, yeah, I think I'm going to make her dinner.
1: That's nice. That's what I ask for Mother's Day. I don't, what I really want is for me to have to do nothing on Mother's Day. <laughs> so it's like, I don't want to unload the dishwasher. I don't want to do any, I don't want to lift a finger on Mother's Day. So that's that's what I ask for.
0: See, that's the perfect gift for mom, though, because most of the time, you know, mom's not going to say, you know, I want a present or I want jewelry or something like that. You know, moms, they just want their kids to appreciate the hard work that they always do for their children and just reflect that for one day. So
1: just leave me alone is my my thing on Mother's Day. (laughs) Don't ask me for stuff. Don't ask me to do anything for you. Nothing. Silence, please, leave me with the book. (laughs) The glory of silence, I do love that. (laughs) But this was actually, Premier John Horgan was talking about this yesterday as well.
0: Yeah, he got asked about this yesterday with uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry Adrian Dixon at press conference, and one of the reporters, she asked him, she said, look, I want to get together with my mom this Mother's Day. You know, I haven't seen her during quarantine, perhaps, but I want to get together with my mother during Mother's Day. Is it safe to do so? Here's what he said.
5: If my mom was here, I'd want to hug her on Mother's Day, but these are choices that you have to make. We're not prescribing to British Columbians who they interact with and how they interact with them, only to say that the best way to protect everyone is to observe social distancing, be sure you're washing your hands regularly, but if your circle has been tight uh, I welcome you to hug your mom but people have to make those choices if your mom has uh, got a compromised immune system it's best to keep that distance and we're saying quite clearly to British Columbians as Dr. Henry and Minister Dix have been saying for over a hundred days now we have a set of rules that if we follow we'll all come out of this better
1: You know, that reminds me though, Nikki, like I'm not a big hugger, but this going through all of this and not being able to even do it if I wanted to has made me feel like I want to hug people. I feel you kind of miss that physical interaction with family members, with loved ones.
0: Yeah, it's funny because it's just something we're so used to doing when you see someone, you know, or someone you love, you know, you want to give them a, a big hug. And we've been denied that opportunity. And one group of people Maybe a a minority, but a group of people who have been denied that opportunity through this pandemic are new parents who have given birth during the pandemic. And they want to show off the baby to the new family members. You know, Mother's Day, of course, if you just had a baby within the last couple of weeks, I mean, mom is probably chomping at the bit to see this new baby and be able to touch it and hold it and hug the new baby. So, I think it has been quite awkward for families. I know a reporter asked a question about that yesterday, too. What about brand new families during the pandemic? Is it safe to have other relatives interacting with the baby? And again, you know, you heard John Horgan's, I think, very common sense response, which was, we're not telling you what to do here, but we're saying the same thing. We're singing from the same hymn book that we have been the whole time, which is, physical distancing is going to be key in helping us end this pandemic. So use your head, be smart about it, and do what you think is best for you and also the rest of society.
1: I think that is excellent advice.
0: Yeah. uh, Speaking of new mothers, did you hear that Elon Musk's partner Grimes, who's actually from Vancouver, as a side note, uh, recently gave birth?
1: Um, Yeah. Are we talking about the name? Because what do you call this baby? (laughs) What... (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, this is a new low in celebrity names as far as i'm concerned <laughs> only because i can't even say the name out loud to tell you exactly what the name is i wish i could tell you how bad this name is but i don't know how to say Would, the name
1: do you just call him x because it there's like x a e a 12
0: yeah that's essentially what it is it's, it's x and then there's a space and then it's the symbol that old sort of latin symbol that a e that's smushed together and then it's a-12 is this kid's name. I mean, come on.
1: Each thing has a meaning. And so Elon Musk and Grimes, they they had a specific reason for each thing. That just, I mean, why are they doing this to this poor kid?
0: Yeah, apparently uh, X, they used it because they like this idea of the unknown variable, um, that A symbol. She said, it's my elven spelling of AI, which is love or artificial intelligence, uh, and then oh the A 12 reference was sort of a nod to an aircraft that they like. I mean, there's no way that <laughs> her explanation justifies how stupid this kid's name is. In fact, it looks like the name will not be accepted by the state of California. You can only use twenty six characters and they have to be of uh you know, the English language in your baby's name. You can't have Roman numerals, you can't have accents, uh, you can't have umlauts, you can't have other symbols, you can't have emojis, you know, you might be able oh. to get away with an apostrophe. That doesn't seem like fair. O'Connor. I can't believe
1: the state of California would interfere. Like I I think this is a dumb name, but is it really for the state of California to tell them it's a dumb name?
0: It's for the baby's own good that the state of California. Hands down. And out of any state, the state of California has to be the one that's really laying, laying the law down for this because think of all those celebrity parents who continue to give their kids these ridiculous names.
1: And you know what? They don't understand that there's a lifetime ahead of them of that poor child trying to explain their name to every single person who asks.
0: The poor child? Let's think about the child's teachers.
1: (laughs) No, it's the poor child who has to answer all the questions. Believe me, I know, I grew up with that. Uh, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi.
5: This is Mornings with Simi. Phase four won't be enacted until there's a vaccine, treatments for COVID-19, or community immunity has been achieved. And until these things happen, BC will not be hosting rock concerts and conventions or any other large gatherings beyond 50 people.
1: it's Premier John Horgan yesterday. So how do we make that happen to get to Phase 4? You heard him mention community immunity. It's also called herd immunity. We wanted to talk more about that because that, get talks, that gets talked about a lot. Uh, in recent weeks as how to potentially deal with the second wave of COVID-19 if it comes. So let's talk about all of this. Joining us now is Jason Tetro, microbiologist who was uh, deeply involved in tackling SARS. Also, of course, the host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast. Good morning, Jason. Hello there. How likely is a second wave?
6: You know, we would have found out by now that it was absolutely going to happen Um, in China and South Korea and Hong Kong and Singapore, because they all went through their first wave. They all got rid of that first wave. And now they're starting to see an increase in cases again. But when you start looking closer at the data, it's actually people who are coming from other countries with the same first wave. And for some reason, it doesn't seem to be getting into those individuals. So that bodes quite well as possibly being something that, you know, we may end up getting a second wave because we do have a lot of naive individuals, but we may also be able to just make sure the virus doesn't show up again and as a result of that not have to worry about it, um okay. and, and, and keep that second wave to flat or, or almost non-existent.
1: What do we classify as a second wave? Like what does that mean?
6: Well, what happens is uh, if you look at how many people have actually been infected, um, and, and will have originally seen this virus, it's going to be a very small part of the population. That's part of the whole flattening the curve thing. Um, But that means that the majority of the population doesn't have the virus. So if you go right back to normal, and then what you do is you, um, you know, have the virus come back into your uh, community, your province, whatever, you're going to have another wildfire outbreak. Mm-hmm. And usually because people are just so darn tired of what they had to do for this wave, they're just not going to listen to health authorities. And then you're going to see a massive increase, a massive amount of cases. You're going to overwhelm the healthcare system. And, and essentially um, it's going to be even worse than the first wave itself
1: right and that's what we have seen in other uh situations like this involving viruses right
6: well uh, 1918 was the big one right um but what you have to realize is that this was a regular occurrence there was no second third whatever wave it was just a regular wave when it came to measles Um, and, and of course, cholera back in the day and smallpox way, way back in the day. So the fact is is that with measles and smallpox, the way that we got past those waves was essentially to have a vaccine, and that's one of the reasons why uh, Premier Horgan is essentially saying that when we have a vaccine, we're going to have a much better opportunity to get back to normal. But until then, we're going to try and avoid the days of measles
1: Right. So that's what we did with measles. But when it comes to the flu, like the one that killed everybody in 1918, (laughs) 1919, Mm -hmm. there was no vaccine.
6: Well, no. And the thing is that um, we now know that having a vaccine is going to help because uh, I don't know if you know this, but you know that pandemic we had a couple of years back, uh, the H1N1 uh, swine flu. Yeah. Um, Well, before COVID hit, there was a circulating virus that was, you know, infecting people uh, of influenza. Well, it happened to be the pandemic strain. It was like the 12th wave or whatever you want to call it. So the fact is that um, when you have a vaccine in place, you obviously may see uh, cases happening over time, um, you know, but then all of a sudden we call it seasonal. So with a vaccine... Um, If we aren't going to stamp it out or or get rid of it completely, we're going to end up with cold, flu, norovirus, COVID season.
1: Right. Okay. So what you're saying then is we not we may not necessarily see this second wave, third wave, at all.
6: If we're really good about being able to try and minimize the amount of this virus spread, and as Dr. Henry has said, we have a proper testing in place so that anyone who shows up who looks like they may have some kind of symptoms that are similar to COVID, we get them tested straight away, Um, then we'll be able to track and trace as opposed to having to shut down. And if we do that, then we're not going to see... Um, mm. A huge wave. We probably will see small individual outbreaks, but we're not going to see the types of waves that we saw with 1918. And that, again, is just simply because we'll be able to track and trace as opposed to just simply let it run wild like a wildfire.
1: You know what? You explained it so well. I get it now, Jason. Thank you.
6: That was a pleasure.
1: That is Jason Techo, our infectious disease expert and host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts.
5: This is Mornings with Simi, Nicolás Maduro appeared in a live broadcast to say the Venezuelan authorities had arrested 13 people, including two U.S. citizens whom he described as mercenaries.
1: Have you been following the story out of Venezuela? It is just bizarre. As you just heard there, authorities are claiming that they have captured two U.S. mercenaries that they claim were part of a team attempting to capture President Nicolás Maduro. What the heck is going on? The United States says, no, hey, we didn't have anything to do with this. But the person at the center of this does say that he had some contact or tried to anyway uh, with the Trump administration. What is happening? Well, we're going to talk more about that now. Joining us now is Michael Byers, the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics at UBC. Michael, thanks for joining us. Good morning. This is one of the more bizarre stories that I've heard about what's going on out there in the world
3: uh it's very strange and uh it it feels like uh, it 's come out of a Frederick Forsyth novel, you know the Dogs of War: Mercenaries trying to overthrow uh, governments in small developing countries uh, It also brings back memories of the Bay of Pigs invasion in nineteen sixty one uh, a failed attempt to invade and overthrow uh, the Cuban government of Fidel castro um, yeah it this doesn 't seem real it 's so utterly uh, crazy.
1: I'm glad you mentioned the Bay of Pigs, because I've heard a lot of comparisons between that and this. What are the similarities here?
3: Well, the similarities uh, are that uh, both in Cuba um, in uh, the 1960s uh, and later, uh, and uh, in Venezuela today, uh, there are very... uh, let's say, uh, uh, unpopular uh, leaders, um, at least unpopular from the perspective of the U.S. government. Uh, Nicolas Madero uh, in Venezuela has been president since 2013. You'll remember he, he took over uh, when uh, Hugo uh, Chavez uh, died right. of cancer Madero has been a disaster for Venezuela, which has collapsed economically, um, and yet he remains in power with the support of the military, Uh, and the U.S. and uh, at least 50 other countries would like to get rid of him, and back in March, Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, put a bounty of $15 million on uh, Nicolas Madero said, look, uh, whoever can uh, uh, you know, arrest or, or provide information leading to the arrest of Madero will get $15 million from the U.S. government. That m- makes me think that uh, there yeah. is a connection uh, between the, the Trump administration and what happened on Monday.
1: Right, because two of the people that the Venezuelan government is kind of parading around, they're, they're former Green Berets, is that right? Uh,
3: they're... Yes, they're former uh, uh, U.S. special forces, and uh, uh, it turns out that the uh, the mastermind uh, behind this uh, uh, this whole thing is uh, is a, a Canadian uh, a slash American, a dual citizen uh, who uh, who served in the U.S. Uh, special forces, a, a Green Beret in both Afghanistan and Iraq, and now runs a uh, essentially a, a mercenary company, a, a military contracting company out of Florida, um, and. It's it seems that they sought to collect the bounty and were hoping to get more money from either the Trump administration or the opposition leader in Venezuela who claims to be the president. And they mounted an invasion, not a very big one, using a few old fishing boats and were promptly met by the Venezuelan military and readily defeat it. Um, A few of them were killed, most of them were arrested, and uh, that's the end of the invasion.
1: Now, we know already that relations are not good between the United States and Venezuela. Could this cause a potential, like, more of a problem with them?
3: Well, Mike Pompeo, the U.S. Secretary of State, says he will do everything possible to uh, retrieve these two U.S. citizens who've been um, arrested uh, in venezuela um, but ask yourself is it reasonable for uh, a government to uh, hand back to people who've just tried to invade their country and overthrow uh, their government and arrest their president um, you know i don't think so i, I think these two americans are, are pretty sure to face trial in venezuela uh, you know they they've engaged in something that that was a direct attack on the venezuelan government um, it, but the the whole thing also reflects the, the totally ham-fisted approach to foreign policy that is taken by the Trump administration. Um, you know there are, are 50 countries called the Lima Group uh, cooperating to to support the Venezuelan opposition to impose sanctions on that country. Uh, and what you do uh, as responsible governments is you apply, apply pressure and, until the regime cracks, and uh, uh, and then you uh, support a, a change of government. Uh, but to send in mercenaries um, is uh, is reminiscent of. of Uh, like I said, uh, of novels, of fiction, of of films. Uh, Someone's been watching or reading too many Tom Clancy novels.
1: It sure sounded like it too. So does this also suggest the strength that Maduro actually has there? I mean, there was talk about double agents, that he had people spying on this, and you think, is he in more control than the Americans realize?
3: He has the support of the military, um, which is made up of hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Um, and, and we forget sometimes uh, when we look at international relations that uh, that the control of, of military force is the, the ultimate uh, bastion of, of sovereignty. Um, these mercenaries seem to uh, misunderstand that, and they ran straight into the cold, hard power of Nicolas Madero and his generals. Um, so, no, this is not the way to do this. Um, uh, it, it's not a, a, a nice situation in Venezuela, um, and I'm not a Maduro supporter. I think he's been grossly incompetent and uh, should move aside. Um, but uh, you do not conduct international relations uh, by sending in hired guns uh, to kidnap or assassinate people. Uh, that's just not the way uh, that uh, we, we provide for a stable, predictable, and, and safe uh, world.
1: That kind of sums it up there. Michael, thank you.
3: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Michael Byers, the Canada Research Chair in Global Politics at UBC, uh, helping us out by talking about this very bizarre story. I've been keeping track of it the last couple of days out of Venezuela, where the Venezuelan government of Nicolas Maduro has arrested uh, a couple of people. Two of them are Americans, one is a Canadian born, now American uh, citizen, uh, at U.S. Special Forces, as Michael mentioned there as well, and have charged them with attempting to capture the president and like send him back to the United States. It is just so strange. And yeah, I've heard the comparisons to Bay of Pigs for sure. Um, we haven't heard the last of that story.
5: This is Mornings with Simi. Groups larger than 50 give the virus an opportunity to reemerge. And no matter how far apart you are, large gatherings will not be
1: allowed. Ah, large gatherings. So that means there's no timeline really here in BC to reopen things like casinos, nightclubs, uh, the province calling it a complicated consideration. That means gatherings of more than 50 people will still be banned until there's a vaccine or treatments that become available to deal with COVID-19 or perhaps enough BC residents develop immunity to the virus. To talk more about how this impacts businesses and, and whether they're getting ready to ramp up and where we're at, we're joined now by Bridget Anderson, President and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, also a member of the Premier's Economic Recovery Task Force. Bridget, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. What are some of the questions that uh, the group has been tackling in the task force?
4: We really, over the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, were focused on some of the government uh, financial measures and how they were helping businesses and where some of those gaps are. But in recent weeks, we pivoted more towards the reopening of the economy and that recovery phase and what that means. So working really closely with uh, with our members of the Board of Trade to understand where some of those gaps are and understanding the cost to business as it reopens. Um, As a short reminder, uh, we did a recent survey where we had about 40% of businesses across Greater Vancouver uh, that said that if they're not operating at full capacity now, they weren't confident that they'd be able to come back um, by. and and really they thought they only had about until mid-June. So we're seeing that businesses are cash-strapped, they're running out of time, And so understanding what the costs to reopen are, and there are some costs involved for sure.
1: Yeah. So do you think just because the government says you can reopen, is every business going to do that?
4: Well, it really does depend on what the guidelines are for each individual sector. As well, um, we are hearing that it's that some businesses that, that can only open, for example, at fifty percent. Is that profitable enough for them to be able to reopen? Uh, as well, there are costs of business to reopen. Whether those that's the cost of cleaning, um, adding additional measures like plexiglass, those kinds of things to be able to meet the guidelines. And so uh, for a lot of businesses, of course, the health and safety of their workers and the public is the top priority. But I am worried that we are going to see some businesses just fail to be able to meet that threshold and be able to get back online.
1: Right. It sounds like some of them, like the big ones, like casinos, who knows when they're going to reopen?
4: Absolutely. For some sectors, this is going to continue to be a slow recovery for those uh, large gatherings. You mentioned casinos, but there's also a lot of conferences that come to Vancouver and a lot of events and festivals and things like that. So that is going to take a long time until we have that vaccine or the herd immunity. And so uh, recognizing, you know, Vancouver is just a big top tourist destination. So workers in those sectors are going to be out of work for some time. And that is a big concern.
1: Right. But they did mention that hotels and resorts could potentially start to open in the next month or so.
4: Yes, and, and that's a great, that's very welcome news for sure, but we also have to think where the traveler is coming from because we do have restrictions in place for traveling. So it'll be, um, as, as restrictions ease and people are allowed to travel throughout the country. You know, I think the Premier and Dr. Bonnie Henry have been fantastic about ensuring that um, people, We welcome people back into our space as it is safe to do that, uh, but recognizing that this is uh, a slow recovery as well, that for some sectors they're going to be able to get back online very quickly and others are going to take some time.
1: So is there more that you think that needs to be done right now to help out businesses?
4: Well, there's two things that we're watching very closely. One is the 75% wage subsidy from the federal government. That is supposed to last until about mid-June, which means that businesses would get cash in hand about the end of June, early July. So when that benefit Runs out If uh, businesses don't have revenues come back to close to the pre-COVID-19 levels, concern that we're going to see some businesses shutter them or we're going to see second round of layoffs. We're watching that very closely. In addition, we're also keeping an eye on what it means um, when we're seeing uh, businesses come back to to be able to get back to to levels of business. Um, Are they going to be able to um, welcome uh, customers back at the same level that they 're going to, and that, so that consumer confidence is extremely yeah. important and and then if we 're seeing a second wave of illness or we 're seeing um, people some community transmission we 're concerned about the cost of business around sick pay right now. It is uh, incumbent upon the employers to pay that sick pay, so workers have to go home and, and self quarantine for 14 days, and, and employers have to pay that cost. So we're working with uh, with the provincial government through the task force, and, and I know that the provincial government is also working with the federal government on this, so so that employers don't have to bear the burden of that cost.
1: So even though then, Bridget, that we heard this news yesterday that oh, you know, things are going to start to open up, and people may feel like okay, BC is on its way again. You're saying there is a lot more work and waiting that needs to be done here?
4: Well, really welcome news yesterday. And I know that many, many businesses across a number of sectors have already been working to put measures in place to meet the guidelines. So this is uh, a really important step forward. But yes, um, it is a gradual um, phase back to what would be, I guess, the new normal as it's being called. And it's going to take time and it's also going to cost uh, businesses to to get those measures back in place, so watching this very carefully and understanding um, what might be needed as additional government uh, support as we are in this
1: transition phase. do you think the consumer confidence is there?
4: You know, I think people are going to react differently. You know, anecdotally, I'm hearing that some people are really ready to get back to a, to, to what was uh, before March, and other people are more cautious. So, I think there is a role um, for for business and government to play here together, where we help to shore up some of that confidence, and, and the confidence will be really if. if if the public feels like a business has done what it's needed to do to meet those guidelines, like we're seeing in grocery stores Mm -hmm. and pharmacies, then we'll see some of that confidence come back. But this is where I think collaboration will be key and and ensuring that businesses are meeting those guidelines. And then they're also communicating that they've met those guidelines.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Bridget, thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. That's Bridget Anderson, president and CEO of the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade, also a member of the premier's economic recovery task force and I think that last point there, absolutely right. If you if they want consumer confidence, if they want people to start buying things again to support local industries and stores and retail, I think people have to feel confident that that store has put into place the measures needed to make shoppers feel safe, like we have seen in grocery stores and drugstores and all of that. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com.
5: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Now, as part of the reopening BC plan that we heard from the provincial government yesterday, we heard about retail and how retail can now start to think about within the next week or two, how they are going to essentially reopen. What does that mean? How do you put social distancing in place in stores? Well, some jurisdictions are already kind of grappling with this. Can the mall really reopen when you're talking about a confined space where people go to buy products and generally end up in kind of close proximity. How can you go to a clothing store and try clothes on that somebody else may have tried on? Those are all things that are being worked out and we wanted to talk about that process. So we're joined now by Tim Sanderson, who's the executive vice president at JLL Canada. Tim, thanks for being back with us.
7: Thank you, Simi. Good to talk to you again.
1: Now, when last time we talked to you, this was seemed like a long way off, but now here we are. But what has the process been like in terms of planning for reopening for a lot of these shopping and retail areas?
7: Well, it's a gargantuan undertaking, as you can appreciate. And many of these retail chains have furloughed employees, released employees, shut down distribution centers. Um, you know, they've got to um, re engage all of that process. And it doesn't just happen overnight. It's not like flipping a switch and we're back in business. Um, many uh, stores need to be restocked. If you're a uh, food and beverage um, uh, retailer, you've got to order you've got the product from your supplier, you've got to get it in there. Uh, obviously, you have to make sure your premises are clean, you've got to put a protocol in place um, for cleanliness, both for your staff and for your customers. And, you know, all of these things add layers of costs as well. And that's another thing that uh, that people need to remember. So um, it's a very, very large undertaking.
1: Are the plans quite similar? Like I know some jurisdictions have already opened up their shopping centres or their stores, but does it look the same no matter where you are?
7: Um, obviously, we've been tracking it as, as it's come back on, on stream uh, globally, but most notably in North America. Um, you know, Simon Properties in the United States opened 49 malls last weekend, um, and the challenge that they had there um, is that not a lot of retailers were open. Um, Some of their biggest and best fortress, you know, are are referred to as the better uh, malls, um, you know, had 15% of the retailers opening their doors when the mall opened. That is not good for business. Um, That does not show the consumer that's walking into the mall, um, you know, a very good story. And um, that consumer is going to go to the mall. They're going to have an underwhelming experience. They might go back in a few weeks as more openings occur. And if that number is not increased, that experience is going to continue to be underwhelming. And, um, you know, we need to get more of these retailers open inside these malls. The landlords and the retailers got to get on the same page with opening. The landlord can't just expect to throw the doors open on the mall and every retailer is going to be ready to do business.
1: Right. So that's what I'm wondering then. So you're saying these big companies that own these malls, they should you know, make sure that they're going to have enough stores open to make it worthwhile for people? 100%.
7: 100%. Similar experience, Manitoba opened up uh, earlier this week, and and the numbers were were slightly higher, more in the 20-25% range, but still large gaps in in terms of open versus closed retailers inside the mall.
1: Right, but are people really ready to go back to the mall, though?
7: Well, I guess that's the $64,000 question we're all looking to understand. You know, what's the experience going to be? Am am I going to have to line up outside the mall before I can even get in? Are they going to restrict the number of people that are allowed inside the property? Um, Obviously, social distancing is going to have to be observed inside the mall and the common areas as well as inside the individual retail shops. Um, People, uh, you know, I've just been talking to one retailer this morning. Their entire staff are going to be wearing PPE, full PPE, masks and gloves but they're not expecting their customers to have to do that. Um, Now, is the mall owner going to say, hey, I want every customer walking in here to put a mask on? That has happened in some jurisdictions as we understand it. Um, So it's going to be interesting to see uh, what the reaction is. Um, You know, uh, some retailers are, are experiencing, you know, decent sales on, the, on those uh, stores that they have reopened. Um, so there is some demand out there. I mean, people right. do like to shop.
1: Yes, they do, or they used to. Anyway, what about the places in China then, Tim, where I know they've, they've gone and opened up some stuff there?
7: Yep. Um, you know, we're seeing different categories in that market um, popping back. Uh, some of them are up to 50% pre-COVID uh, sales volumes. Some are up uh, to 70% pre-COVID volumes. Um, you know, the thing to remember about China is, is it's a different form of government there. And, um, you know, the form of government they have is such that, you know, nobody lost their job during all this. No businesses went out of business during this because the government basically, you know, runs the place and guarantees everything. So a um, bit of a different uh, mentality there, obviously, and uh, one that's not, uh, we got, you know, we can take learnings from how they did it. But to say that we're going to have the same experience in terms of bounce back, if you will, um, I don't know that it's the best apples to apples comparison to make.
1: Right. Even with all that um, control there, though, they're still not seeing the same numbers that they used to, right?
7: Nope. Nope. Not at all. I think people are still, you know, uh, shy and being very careful about, you know, being in large groups. Um, And uh, it's definitely a concern.
1: That is a concern. So it, do you think that what's being developed here, Tim, is it like a, a, a universal kind of way of dealing with this or is it being left and is it very piecemeal the way it's being done?
7: In, in terms of the openings or in terms of in terms getting ready of, to
1: open? Yes, in terms of getting ready to open. The standards that we are going to set at, the, at these malls, is it going to be like different standards depending on what mall you go to?
7: Um well it appears that it's gonna be dictated by the provincial or the provincial governments across the country in Canada. And uh you know, Manitoba might have a different standard than New Brunswick, for example, just on you know, their level of PPE and, and, and things like that. But but I, I definitely, you know, without a doubt, I mean the federal government is is, you know, talking about social distancing and, and as they should be. Um and that the basic commonsensical types of um, you know behaviors. I, I think still have to be observed. And and you know, God forbid, if we don't observe that, and we have a, a, a you know a pushback or another incident of this, um, that's going to be um, not good for for anything.
1: No, it anything. won't be. So so, what should people prepare themselves for? Like more plexiglass, wear a mask to the mall, don't handle the merchandise as much as you used to.
7: Yep, absolutely. All, all, all of the above. Um, don't be expecting to try clothing on when you're going to shop for fashion items. Um, I, I, that has been happening in some markets in the United States. They're allowing customers to, to uh, try clothing on. But as far as I've understood, in most jurisdictions in Canada, that's not going to be allowed.
1: Interesting. All right. Well, Tim, thanks so much. We'll be checking back in with you in a couple of weeks, I'm sure.
7: My pleasure. Thanks. Have a good
1: day. You too. That's Tim Sanderson. He's the Executive Vice President at JLL Canada. They deal with retailers. uh, They deal with landlords like owners of malls and all of that right across the country there in, in North America. So they are deeply involved in the retail business and they see major changes ahead. So just because the government says retail can reopen doesn't mean that all the stores are suddenly going to throw their doors open and it's going to be right back to shopping. It's going to look, as Tim pointed out, very different. If you're ready to go back to the mall or not, drop me an email, send me at cknw.com.